Odato, the Cato Institute's Director of Government Affairs. And today our Hill briefing is going to be focused on the topic of marriage equality. Obviously, anyone in this room knows that the arguments happened at the Supreme Court last month, so I won't go over a lot of those arguments. You've heard it in the news a lot since then. So what I'm hoping to do today with this panel is address it from a few different areas. Um, a couple people will be addressing the different arguments in the amicus briefs because there are a few different sides to that. We're also going to be talking about the history of the issue and the changing political demographics of support for marriage equality. I'm going to give very short bios of our very um, accomplished speakers, so just trust that they are much more accomplished than I will be able to tell you today, but in order to get to them, I will move it along. I'll introduce them each briefly and then let them speak, and we should have plenty of time for questions and answers at the end. First up today is Ilya Shapiro, who's a senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute, and he's also the editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Prior to joining Cato, he was a special assistant and advisor to the multinational force in Iraq on rule of law issues, and he practiced international, political, commercial, and antitrust litigation at Patton Boggs and Cleary Gottlieb. As coordinator of Cato's amicus brief program, he has filed more than 100 friend of the court briefs in the Supreme Court. Following Ilya will be Mary Bonato, who is the Civil Rights Project Director at Gay and Lesbian Advocates and Defenders. Mary's practice concentrates on impact litigation for the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender communities, as well as people living with HIV or AIDS. She has litigated widely in the state and federal courts and agencies of the six New England states since 1990 on issues of employment discrimination, custody, free speech, and civil rights. She is currently leading GLAD's challenge to the constitutionality of Section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act in two cases in federal court. Third up today is Walter Olson, who is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies. Prior to Cato, he was a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and he's also been a columnist for Great Britain's Times Online, as well as Reason. And he has appeared numerous times before Congress and advised many public officials. He has also founded and continues to run Overlawyer.com, which is widely cited as the oldest blog on law, as well as one of the most popular. Last but certainly not least today is Catherine Lehman, who is a partner at Holland and & Knight and practices in the area of public policy and regulation. A 15-year veteran of the Hill, she has significant and wide-ranging experience. Prior to entering private practice, she served as Chief of Staff for the House Republican Conference, and previous roles also include counsel on the House Judiciary Committee staff, Special Assistant to then-Speaker Newt Gingrich, Policy Director to House Majority Whip Tom DeLay, and Director of Coalitions and Outreach for Speaker Dennis Hastert. Now I will turn the podium over to Ilya. Actually, we agree that Mary is going to go first. I'll accept that change. It's a friendly amendment. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Thanks for being here. Um, I was really delighted to be inter introduced and not uh, have somebody say, and she's the one who brought that marriage case in Massachusetts. Uh, so what I want to do today is really two things. Number one, I want to give you a very compressed history of where we've been, where we are, and I think where we're going. And since we were talking about the Supreme Court uh, at the end of March, I want to talk about the legal arguments in both cases very briefly, because the arguments are what they've always been. Uh, it's just that they finally reached our nation's highest court. I also want to thank Cato for inviting me here, and I really want to thank Cato for joining forces with us uh, when we agree, uh, including in both the Windsor-Doma case and the, the Perry marriage case in terms of filing an amicus brief, which I know Ilya will talk about. Okay, so first of all, with respect to the history of this piece, um, you know, getting to the Supreme Court on these issues, I have to just say, is momentous. You know, our nation's most important, among our most important principles, liberty for all, equality, equal protection of the law, of course, in the prism of family, marriage, the people that matter to you most. And, you know, of course, as much as this is about principles, it's so much about real people. The heart and soul of these issues always is the real people who are affected 
and the law really matters in terms of the lives that people can live. I also will say, of course, that legally, marriage is enormously consequential, and DOMA's discrimination against already married people, of course, is very consequential, because these laws, marriage-related laws, affect people in every area of life and death. And then, of course, because there have been historically marriage restrictions, our nation has come to see the right to marry also as a civil right. So it's quite a crucible of issues that the court was confronted with. I will say very briefly that there have always been gay people who have wanted to marry, although that hope, I think, was pretty much crushed out of people by some very dismissive cases from the 1970s uh, where one author compared those cases, the courts in those cases, and the way they treated the cases as saying it was though it was a man coming to court seeking a right to be pregnant, like they just didn't get it at all. Uh, and I think people just felt like, well, this is not doable for us. But in 1993, uh, a spark of hope was rekindled by the Hawaii Supreme Court, which said that the you know, state's denial of marriage licenses to three same-sex couples raised a discrimination issue, raised an equal protection issue. And the state had to come back with justifications for why these couples are being excluded. And although that's a very long story, the short version is uh, progress in Hawaii was ultimately thwarted by the political process. Uh, Hawaii continues to, to fight another day. They have civil unions now and are, are trying to get to marriage as well. But that was in 1993, and I think it was by 1997 that um, you know the, the stage was really set for uh, what ultimately became a defeat at the ballot uh, on a constitutional amendment in 1998. But in the meantime, again, eight years before same-sex couples married anywhere, uh, the Congress in 1996 passed the Defense of Marriage Act. Here's my translation of the Defense of Marriage Act, with no disrespect intended to anyone who might have drafted it, who might be in this room, <laughs> is, if any state is crazy enough to ever let same-sex couples marry, then A, states will not have to recognize it anyway, and that's Section 2 of DOMA saying states are free to enact their own public policies with respect to same-sex marriage, singling out same-sex marriage in federal law, and then Section 3 of DOMA, which is the one that's being litigated right now, which says that there's a federal definition of marriage for purposes of all federal uh, programs, which essentially would wipe out and does wipe out the existing legal marriages of same-sex couples uh, under federal law. So that passed. Um, and then in 1997, I teamed up with two people in Vermont and filed a case there called Baker versus Mont Vermont, which was decided at the end of 1999. And we didn't get the result we wanted, but what the court said was, yep, there's an equal protection issue here. And same-sex couples have to have the same protections under law that other people have. And we're going to leave it to the legislature to decide whether to do that through marriage or some separate system. And that led to, ultimately, the creation of the nation's first civil union law, uh, providing those same protections, calling it a marital status, but continuing to exclude same-sex couples from marriage. I then filed a case in Massachusetts in April 2001, making it clear that we were seeking marriage itself. And in November 2003, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court broke the historic barrier and ended the exclusion of same-sex couples, affirming that the Massachusetts Constitution, and I suggest all of our constitutions, do not tolerate the creation of second-class citizens in this nation. Marriages began in November, not November, excuse me, in May of 2004. And from my perspective, that was really when things began to, to pick up, both in terms of uh, some of the opposition out there, but really, much more importantly, what happened was an outbreak of happiness. There was so much joy. There were so many weddings. Weddings are happy occasions. 
families come together, and finally people were able to stand up in front of their family and friends and make that pledge, ideally of a lifelong commitment and being there for one another through the good times and the bad, and people began to understand on a human level that what same-sex couples are seeking in marriage actually has a lot in common with what other people are seeking in marriage, making that commitment, being there for one another, and having the freedom finally to do that. It, uh, because there was some uh, blowback in Massachusetts, sort of a ferocious um, attack for a number of years is how it was experienced, um, we were not able to secure marriage in any other states until 2008, which was both Connecticut, again, a result of litigation that we did, and then also in California. Uh, as you know, Proposition 8 reversed the result in California, but Connecticut codified the decision. In 2009, we had an, a unanimous Supreme Court decision for, in Iowa, and then we had legislatures, significantly legislatures entering the fray and deciding that it was the right thing constitutionally and as a matter of public policy to allow same-sex couples to join in marriage. In Vermont, where there was an override of a governor's veto, in New Hampshire and in Maine, although again, we lost at the ballot in Maine in 2009. And then New York, District of Columbia, this past year, Washington, Maryland, um, approving of marriage legislatively. And then in Maine in 2012, and this is another effort of which I was part, we went to the ballot directly. We asked the voters to approve of a marriage law, and I think for the first time proved that people who had once voted against you could change their minds and be with you. And I think we see that all the time now in public opinion polls, since in every poll, the demographics, um, no matter what demographic group you're in, uh, there is movement. So at this point, we stand in a situation where there are nine states in the District of Columbia with marriage, nine states that have separate systems that provide protections at the state law level, whether they're called civil union or registered domestic partnership. Uh, there are a number of cases underway. There are states with more modest systems. But clearly, the nation is in progress. Um, however, there are also 31 states out there with constitutional amendments on marriage. 20 of those forbid not only marriage, but other protections. So clearly, the path forward is going to be a difficult one. But I think the lesson to take from this is that every branch of government and the court of public opinion are involved in this discussion about how to advance quality, about recognizing that gay and lesbian people are part of the community and have families and need protection. The other thing I wanted to do briefly now that I've given you that background is just talk about the legal arguments. So one of the arguments out there in terms of marriage, if I can just start with that, is in this nation, uh, through 14 different decisions from the Supreme Court, we have come to recognize that there's a fundamental right to marry. And that when there is a fundamental right that's enjoyed by all Americans, you need, the government needs a very good justification for saying some other group of Americans can't participate in that right. And I think that is really the question before the court is what is the justification for excluding only committed same-sex couples from marriage. Now, of course, if any of you listened to the oral argument or read the transcript, you know that there was some discussion about, well, is this fundamental right really bounded by gender because isn't it really about procreation and so on? But I will just say that it's very clear from a, a lot of recent opinions from the court itself that marriage and procreation are both recognized as separate and distinct fundamental rights enjoyed by all persons. They are not mutually dependent upon one another. There's also, of course, always the question, and this did come up in a question from Justice Sotomayor about, well, if, it, if marriage is a fundamental right, or if we say it's really that gay people are included in this fundamental right to marry, well, what else? What's going to happen? Are we going to have polygamy? 
And the answer to that very simply is, number one, when that case, if that case ever were to come before the court, there will be justifications advanced for why multiple person marriages are not going to be in service of the nation, uh, not going to really serve the purposes of marriage. The one that Tettleson advanced that argument had to do with oppression of women. So it's really a different issue is what I am saying. The other, fun, the other major argument out there about marriage is not the liberty due process framework, but the equal protection framework, which is essentially you have this legal institution, that's what we're talking about, government regulated marriage. This legal institution, it's a massive institution, it's a gateway to all kinds of protections, civil right, you know, status of family, and so on. And again, what is the justification for saying only gay people cannot participate in this as an equality matter? And that's where I just want to review really quickly, you know, <laughs> there have been arguments out there um, forever about basically this is about gay people. We're uncomfortable with gay people. We don't like gay people, et cetera, and said in any number of ways. And I just want to be really clear to that, whether you call that morality or dislike or animus or anything else, those things are walled off in court. They are not legitimate interests for the government. Our government isn't government of equal laws, where every person is supposed to have equal protection of the laws. So those cannot have any sway in court. Moreover, in 2003, when the United States Supreme Court decided Lawrence versus Texas, the sodomy case, they made it very, very clear that they had been wrong in the past when they said that moral judgments could be used to harm gay people and to have laws that criminalize gay people. And the court didn't just talk about this as a criminal law. They talked about relationships, having respect and dignity, and that that was a right that gay people have along with everyone else. So I have to say, when you actually argue these issues now, the playing field is really much more limited, which really pushes um, our opponents, and this was certainly at the argument, pushes our opponents to um, an argument that's been a standard bearer, which is really procreation. The whole idea of marriage, the reason it exists is procreation. Uh, has nothing to do with love and commitment of the adults. It's about procreation. And I don't think anybody would really argue that a lot of procreation happens in marriage. Um, but again, is that the whole reason that the state brings people together and so on? And I will tell you right now that the historians and the family law professors will tell you that there are all kinds of reasons uh, that marriage benefits the state far apart from procreation. And then, of course, that argument, it was very interesting to have Justice Kagan uh, come back and say, if really the purpose is procreation, does that mean that the state could say to people who are age 55 and older, you may, you're not eligible to marry, sorry, because you're not going to be procreating? And the answer was, well, of course not. And that's right. The answer should be, of course not, because marriage does serve purposes other than procreation. Uh, the other answer, of course, that Justice Scalia offered was, well, it would be an invasion of privacy to ask if somebody was fertile if they were 55 and so on, but as Justice Kagan then replied, this was one of those examples where they were fighting with each other and leaving the lawyers out of it, um, was, you know, this is, not, this is not a big invasion of privacy. We ask about people's ages all the time. So there is the, the other argument I think that you're left with, and this is one I have to say that's really been invented in the marriage litigation involving same-sex couples, is not just the purpose of marriage is procreation, but this idea of responsible procreation. And I mean zero disrespect on what I'm about to say, but I'm just telling you what the argument is, has been advanced by the other side, which is that um, for heterosexual people, there can be accidental pregnancies. One person in a deposition called it spontaneous procreation. Um, <laughs> I never heard of that. Um, but anyway, that heterosexual people can get accidentally pregnant, and they are going to be less inclined to marry if gay people can get married too. And 
as a result of that, we would have more non-marital children. Unless, so the idea is we're going to prevent non-marital children by denying, denying gay people the ability to marry, even though, of course, many of those gay people are also raising children. Uh, if this makes sense to anybody, great, because it didn't make a lot of sense in court that day, and it doesn't make a lot of sense as a general matter, because I think the real question is what harm is there from including same-sex couples in, mar in marriage? What is gained by excluding same committed same-sex couples from joining in marriage? Uh, from my view, one of the most important things that happened over the course of th those two days is in the Perry argument, Charles Cooper there defending Prop 8 was asked by Justice Sotomayor, apart from the marriage context, can you think of any time when it is a legitimate interest of the government to burden gay people or same-sex couples, to impose a disadvantage on them that's not imposed on others? And his answer was, no, I cannot think of any. And that just to me says an awful lot about where we are right now, which is there is, you know, there is really no good reason for saying that gay people should be denied basic rights and protections that everyone else has. And I hope the court can find its way to get there in the marriage context as well. Which leaves me with just DOMA very briefly. DOMA is a different issue from the marriage situation because with DOMA, what you're dealing with is people who have already legally joined in marriage in their states. They are committed in marriage. You know, pursuant, the states already resolved these issues and said you can marry, and they're married. But what they now face is a situation where the federal government treats them as single for all 1,100 plus purposes, uh, where the federal government takes marriage into account. And, you know, this is very important, very important protections, you know, the ability to get family policy of health insurance in some cases, take family leave if your spouse is seriously ill. If you're active duty military, there's a lot of protections for spouses, including sp surviving spouses when someone's killed in the line of duty, uh, you know, joint tax filings, social security, survivor benefits, on and on and on. So there's a lot at stake. And one of the, one of the, just the pieces about the litigation is it's just become clear that um, in order to try to defend DOMA, its defenders had to just move past the House report and try to invent some new justifications. Um, you know, along the lines of, well, DOMA's uniform rule makes sure that uh, a couple in New York is treated the same way as a couple in Nebraska. And that's true. That's a rule that treats all gay people the same. But in our nation, what has happened is that the federal government has treated married people the same, even though states have had different marriage laws. And from the, be from the beginning, from the time of Revolutionary War pensions, in fact, what the government has cared about is, are you married under your state's law? It's taken that as a starting point, even though somebody may be married in one state, but that same couple couldn't be married in another. So the, the only uniformity really that's left, and I think it's fair to say that uh, the council was really pummeled on this point, the only uniformity that really does exist is a uniform rule where the federal government has deferred to states. So I will be very interested to see the outcomes. I do think there could be, um, you know, a win in DOMA or not. And if not, then we will certainly live to fight another day in terms of uh, going to the Congress. It could be a limited win, in which case uh, people will be back in court with more cases since so many people have been affected. And on the marriage case, on the Perry case, as I think you all know, they asked for a broad ruling, not just invalidating Proposition 8, but all of the restrictions that exist nationwide. Uh, frankly, I think that's the right result. Everybody, all the prognosticators say that's not going to happen. The case will be dismissed on standing grounds or whatever it might be. Uh, but frankly, if marriage is restored in California, that would be a terrific thing. 
it's our nation's most populous state, and Prop 8 was really experienced as a very severe injury there to have marriage actually taken away. Uh, so in any event, um, I, have the, I have the suspicion that these issues will play out for a number of years, but that's uh, where we've been, I think, where we're going. Thank you. Well, in addition to um, uh, taking some of my time, I think Mary also took all of my points. So uh, I'll, I'll put together some disjointed observations for you, for you here. Um, uh, actually, uh, what I really want to take on is uh, the strongest philosophical uh, argument for the opponents uh, to uh, gay marriage. Um, you know, Mary mentioned some of the legal points and, and how argument went on the other side. Uh, but if you read uh, kind of the most uh, respectable, intelligent, you know, secular uh, uh, defenses uh, of uh, the other side, and I, I commend to you a book called What is Marriage by Sharif Gurgis, Ryan Anderson, and Robbie George. It came out of a Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy uh, uh, article, they will say, you know, yeah, they, they'll, they'll talk a little bit about procreation and all these other things, but it comes down to this. To, to even call something gay marriage or same-sex marriage is akin to talking about a square circle. Uh, it's not about uh, you know, opening up and whether these rights should be given or not, but it's about fundamentally redefining a concept in a way that makes no sense. You know, for millennia, uh, people have gotten together to live together, whether to raise kids or otherwise form bonds, um, uh, and, and, and that's just the way it is. And, and there's no problem with uh, gay people living together, holding themselves out as a couple. Um, <coughs> that's not what the issue is. This isn't about criminalizing gay behavior, stigmatizing uh, same-sex couples. This is simply about the institution of marriage, which by, def by its very definition, marriage implies uh, a man and a woman. And that's true uh, to a very large extent. I accept that uh, in the abstract, in the sense that uh, if you want to go to your church, to your rotary club, your synagogue, your coven, your think tank, whoever you want to have consecrate, sanctify, recognize your relationship in whatever manner you want, um, that's great. I don't think the government should be standing in the way or, you know, forcing private institutions to, you know, uh, marry or otherwise unite people that, uh, you know, offends their, their beliefs, secular or religious. But this debate is about the role of government. And that's why Cato's involved. This, like every other public policy area, uh, we believe the optimal solution, well, there, I mean, there's some debate because it's a lot of intertwining of different policy areas, but at base, I think the problem is that government is getting involved in an area, in an entanglement, uh, where it shouldn't be. This really should uh, all be taken care of with contract law. You know, you can uh, contract with whoever you want to be able to inherit whatever you want, visit you in the hospital, you know, uh, uh, custody rights, all of these different things. And as far as some of these uh, other things where DOMA is implicated, the thousands of, uh, over a thousand federal laws, Social Security, immigration, taxation, uh, th that's a matter of uh, reforming those particular laws. You know, if we had a sensible immigration system, you wouldn't need to even inquire what kind of marriage is this, is it proper, you know, all that sort of thing. If you had a proper, uh, you know, a pension system, you know, have a, a market-oriented uh, old age security system or, or what, what have you, 
uh, most of these issues would go away. It's like uh, um, you know, a lot of the problems we have uh, the, the, that come up in public schools, whether you're talking about prayer in schools or uh, evolution or what to teach, basic curricular issues. And the basic problem there is the government monopoly over public schools. Because if it's not the government being involved, that does imply uh, certain rights and duties of equality and fundamental rights and, and these sorts of constitutional issues, uh, then private parties can, can do uh, uh, what they wish uh, effectively. Uh, but because here government is involved and because this isn't sorted out through common law and contract law and, and, and things like this, um, that is where the, one of the most fundamental uh, basic concepts in the law comes into play, the equality under the law. It predates the Equal Protection Clause, although of course here in uh, you know, in the Supreme Court, uh, lawyers have to argue from the text, structure, history of the Constitution and the, the, the precedent that's, that's arisen under it. Um, but whether you're talking about kind of the, the abstract uh, ancient Greek idea of uh, equality under the law, whether you're talking about the Equal Protection Clause, uh, the basic idea is if government passes a law, if they create some sort of legal uh, political institution, they have to... Uh, treat citizens uh, equally under it. And uh, I don't just say this, uh, you know, thinking that, well, the, the proponents or ratifiers of the 14th Amendment in 1868 uh, or of the Fifth Amendment, when we're talking federally, the, the equality under the law concept comes under the Fifth Amendment in uh, 1791, that they had in mind uh, gay marriage. But the thing is, you don't go about interpreting the 14th Amendment or the due process or equal protection aspects of the Fifth Amendment uh, by looking at, you know, trying to enumerate what our natural rights are or what are the things that we're supposed to be treated equally. That's, um, that's an impossible task. Um, as the Declaration of Independence uh, says, we're endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights, and then we create government to secure those rights. We don't list it all out, even the, the Bill of Rights, right? The Ninth Amendment says, uh, uh, beyond the enumeration of these rights, there's others that are retained. Um, it it doesn't, doesn't disqualify uh, these, these other things. And so if you look at actually the debates over the 14th Amendment, uh, it was meant, uh, the Equal Protection Clause specifically, was meant to cover more than uh, raising up freed blacks to remove the badges of slavery. It was meant to cover uh, Asians working on railroads in the West. Uh, and it wasn't just meant to deal with, uh, for example, uh, states that were disarming their black citizens to be able to oppress them or certain other kind of fundamental rights to free speech or, or things. Marriage itself uh, was contemplated. For a while, there was a federal common law of marriage because, of course, the states uh, before the Civil War did not recognize slave marriages. And um, uh, after, you know, during Reconstruction, there was, you know, what, what do you do with these uh, couples that were, for all intents and purposes, married, but there's no uh, license. So the federal government had to step in uh, through this vehicle. So the brief that Cato filed, we joined the uh, Constitutional Accountability Center, um, uh, looked at the history, kind of a very, very originalist uh, perspective uh, on what equality under the law means under the Constitution for purposes of federal benefits under Domov uh, and for purposes of uh, state marriage laws uh, in, the, in the Prop 8 
uh, Perry case, so I commend that to you. In fact, there's a, an internet meme that, that our new media folks created. Uh, the Center for Can uh, the Constitutional Accountability Center calls themselves progressive originalists, if you can square that in your mind, and they do uh, a lot of good and, and interesting work. And um, you know, we agree with them every few years on something. The last time was on the meaning of the Privileges or Immunities Clause for purposes of the right to keep and bear arms. Uh, now it's for equal protection. Uh, I would put down a bet now that the next time we get together with them three or four years ago, it'll be on the Due Process Clause. Just, just uh, I have no idea, but that uh, apparently is where the trend is going. But anyway, we have this internet meme. You know the, uh, the Dos Equis commercial, the, the most interesting man in the world, you know, that bearded gentleman, right? So Cato and CAC don't always agree, but when we do, it's the most interesting brief in the world. <laughs> Um, but anyway, you know, who knows what the Supreme Court will, uh, will accept. Uh, you know, luckily Cato doesn't pay me for the accuracy of my predictions uh, of what the Supreme Court does. I don't think anyone can really make a living uh, on that. Uh, to take a stab on the DOMA case, I can see four justices accepting the equal protection argument. Uh, four justices, uh, you know, rejecting, upholding DOMA or, or deciding on, on procedural grounds uh, to dismiss the challenge. Uh, and one, Justice Kennedy, he seemed to like the federalism argument. Um, I don't really, um, I think that this federalism argument ultimately collapses into an equal protection argument. The argument is that the federal government should not be regulating marriage and by defining marriage in DOMA, it steps on state uh, concerns and each state should be able to do uh, what they want. Um, but that's not really, you know, uh, Wally will talk about this a little bit. I, I, I think that that's ultimately kind of a, a way station on the way to the ultimate uh, merits determination from the court about equal protection um, because the federal government certainly can define the terms in its statutes. And the issue is whether its definition of this particular term violates uh, the Constitution. Uh, you know, it, it, it may or may, it may not. Uh, but it, it, it seems like that's the issue here. It's not that the federal government is forcing a definition of marriage uh, onto the states. But I think Kennedy is more inclined to accept that sort of uh, federalism type argument. So I could see a 4-1-4 decision striking down DOMA with uh, Section 3 without a controlling opinion. On the Prop 8 case, as Mary said, it could be a dismissal on procedural grounds. But again, I don't think there will be a, a merits-based uh, decision. Uh, as Mary alluded to, the trends are... Um, uh, all in one direction, both in terms of over time, people's opinions, and the younger you get, the more support for same-sex marriage there is, and that's in every population, black, white, women, uh, Jews, evangelicals, I mean, whichever demographic you want to slice it. Uh, so I don't think this issue is, is going to be uh, long with us. But what I w would love to see is for a state like Oklahoma or Utah or Mississippi, kind of the ones that where it would take longer if just left to their own devices, to pass a law saying, okay, if the Supreme Court requires uh, uh, a gay marriage, then we're going to get out of the marriage business uh, altogether. I think that would be uh, ultimately the more healthier result and to return to what I said at the beginning, uh, that would let uh, you know, things like the common law and contract law take care of these important issues. Thank you. Okay. I'm going to use my few minutes to talk a bit more about the public opinion polls and the dramatic story they've told. Um, the election results that are uh, tied to those public opinion polls and especially the problem that this poses for the National Republican Party, which is in a remarkable box at the moment that it finds hard to get out of. Uh, <clears throat> there are a lot of polls, they don't all agree, but let me pick as pretty typical the Washington Post to ABC 
uh, news poll that came out last month, it found that the public now, uh, by a majority of 58 to 36 percent, supports gay marriage. Uh, that is one of the most rapid changes that has ever been seen in public opinion polling. Uh, Ten years ago, it was 20 points lower, so that's a 2 percent a year clip, which is breakneck by the standards of public opinion. Uh, as Ilya mentioned, the uh, age differences in the demographics are uh, quite remarkable. Uh, under 30, uh, 81 percent support. But note, uh, over 65, still 44 to 50, only narrowly unpopular with over 65s. Minorities, we know from other polls, are now uh, fairly closely divided after having been overwhelmingly opposed only a decade ago. Uh, Catholics tend to be strongly pro, despite the opinion of uh, the Vatican. Uh, College-educated whites in the Washington Post poll, 65 to 29 percent. And we hear a lot of talk, and there was a George Will column a few weeks ago about how uh, this issue is settled because the opposition is dying off. I think that's a bit exaggerated. There was a, an analysis from the group Third Way which found that if you break down the changes in opinion polls, only one quarter of it is actually a generational shift of old people uh, being replaced by young people in the polls. The other three quarters is change of mind. And uh, I'm not sure which of those has more ominous implications for the Republican platform. Uh, <clears throat> I say Republican platform because uh, the issue is by no means uh, simply uh, headed toward a complete uh, national unanimity. The uh, people who are strongly opposed, although fewer than those who are strongly in favor, it's still 31% of respondents. That's a lot of people to be strongly opposed. Uh, that is, of course, concentrated, especially in the older age brackets, but it's concentrated above all in the one demographic that is still strongly, overwhelmingly against same-sex marriage, namely self-identified Republicans. Uh, <coughs> among self-identified Republicans, only those who are younger than 30 support same-sex marriage. All of the older groups still oppose it by varying margins, often 20, 30 percent. Add in, however, what are called GOP-leaning independents. This is a pollster's term of art, but it means people who are not sufficiently committed to claim the identification of, yes, I'm a party person, but nonetheless, in practice, usually vote for Republicans. All of a sudden, big, big change. At that point, uh, under 50, uh, it is 52 to 43 percent in favor of same-sex marriage. So it's not the Republican voters who are the holdouts. It is the Republican partisan identifiers uh, who are at that hardcore of opposition. And for the party, there's one simple result there, which is the primaries. Uh, you can be a new model Republican like Senator Portman in Ohio, uh, and by changing your position, you find that you are changing to that that is favored, uh, apparently in polls by a majority of Ohio residents and certainly by a majority of national residents, but not by a majority of those in Republican primaries. And every Republican who is thinking of making a similar statement uh, has to consider that. Uh, now, <clears throat> when public opinion is changing, by 2% a year, you will see the results in elections. And you saw exactly this in the various state referenda on uh, gay marriage. For uh, a, the longest streak, 30, 31 cases, uh, the opponents always won. Uh, if they didn't win the first time, they'd come back and win the second time. And then last November, this suddenly and dramatically changed. All four propositions uh, went the other way. And <coughs> I spent quite a while, I live in Maryland, one of the four states that uh, legalized, uh, that, that approved the legalization of gay marriage, and I spent quite a while looking into the 
uh, precinct results on Maryland, Minnesota, and Maine uh, because I was so fascinated. I know that uh, in the election night gathering, perhaps the most shocking thing to proponents was not winning. Um, polls had shown like a 10-point lead. You subtract a few points from people not leveling with pollsters. The shocking thing was that of the three large Republican counties in Maryland, two of them voted for gay marriage. That was what was not expected. Uh, it was the strength in Republican constituencies that was the single most surprising result. And it was not, it turned out, a Maryland phenomenon alone. Exactly the same thing was going on in Minnesota that night. Uh, and in Maine, if you can find any Republicans, it, it seems to have been happening there too. Um, <laughs> The, yes, both of them were interviewed, and, and one of them was. Um, but 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 this was uh, this was borne out by the, the polling. Thirty percent or so of those who voted for Romney in Maryland also crossed right over and voted for gay marriage. A combination of views that would have been considered almost impossible uh, not too long ago. My own town. Um, I'd hate to break it to any Democrats here present, but President Obama was deeply, deeply unpopular in my own suburb. He got only 39% of the vote. Uh, gay marriage breezed through with 53%. That was a 14-point swing. And fascinated by differences like that, I checked out where else in Maryland it was happening because it turned out there were a lot of towns that had more than a 14-point swing. Um, there were towns where Romney got a landslide and gay marriage also got a landslide of 60% or more. And the demographics emerged uh, pretty clearly. The, um, the towns and counties where uh, gay marriage ran worse than Obama um, and yet were Republican areas were very rural. They were so far west that you were past the beginning of the Appalachians or they were in the most rural parts of the Eastern Shore. Uh, the areas where there were 20, 25-point swings the other way were typically well-educated commuter suburbs. Uh, which in many ways are the heartland of the Republican Party, at least in Maryland and I suspect in many, many other states too. They are the towns that the best-known Republican politicians often tend to come from. They are the towns that give the biggest per capita donations to the Republican Party. Uh, the, these are the towns with lots of uh, executives, um, uh, entrepreneurs, small business people. And <clears throat> this part of the Republican Party has already made its switch. Uh, another thing that is boxing in the... <clears throat> how can you time me when the... Uh, watch goes on. Uh, yes. Oh, good. Thank you. Um, so what does the Republican Party do? Uh, <clears throat> it has painted itself into a corner because it has uh, inevitably done the bidding of those who are most active within uh, Republican primaries and, and those who are uh, uh, most active at, at the party level. And that means that it is currently committed in its platform and may commit it, recommit itself this week to an actual constitutional amendment banning gay marriage. Now, you can imagine if gay marriage is winning by a strong margin nationally, the idea of passing a constitutional amendment to make sure we stomp on it uh, permanently is a no-go with the general public. Where does the Republican Party go? Now, it seems to me that there's a fairly obvious out um, which is to go with federalism. Uh, the, the Republican Party has long favored federalism as a solution to a lot of other naughty uh, social problems. In this case, it would simply take the form of saying, uh, look, there are a lot of differences between New York and Texas. They're not going to be resolved anytime soon. Let each state go their own way. Part of DOMA, at least, uh, the section that is not under challenge, Section 2, uh, is more or less consistent with that. The Republican Party is not there yet. Uh, I think that if it has any survival instinct, it will be there soon. Thanks.
Well, thank you. Um, thank you for being here. I'm very impressed that nobody is on their, um, their devices playing Candy Crush, because um, I know I am somewhat challenged when it comes to that. Uh, I have both um, sort of prepared remarks and then notes, and um, I might jump back and forth. I'm, apparently, I'm a lot shorter than everybody. Well, not you, but uh, I'm going to jump back and forth between the two. Um, as I was introduced, I'm Catherine Lehman. I'm a partner at the law firm of Holland and Knight. I've been there since 2005, um, worked, as, as mentioned, for various Republicans on the Hill. Um, very, you know, pretty conservative. Um, and I used to say, except on this issue, but um, the more I thought about it, I actually think my position on this issue is um, consistent, entirely consistent with conservative principles. Um, I just want to go back. Uh, Mary mentioned that I was one of the people, I was the chief counsel of the subcommittee at the House Judiciary Committee, and we drafted DOMA. Um, it was 1996. It was, I guess, three years after Hawaii's decision regarding equal protection. There was a concern that because of the full faith and credit clause, essentially once one state had gay marriage, that basically every other state would be required to accept gay marriage. That, uh, I have come to find out, was, is absolutely not true. Am I wrong? No. Um, and I would be happy to talk about this with anybody, and quite frankly, I spent a lot of time with Republican members of Congress and staff talking about this. And I'm going to bore you for just a few minutes because if there's one thing you take, if you're a Republican, if there's one thing you take away, this is the most important thing to take away. If DOMA is repealed in its entirety, the full faith and credit clause does not require states to recognize the same sex marriage to other states. So, in other words, you have a couple that's lawfully married in, in New York, they move to Virginia. Virginia does not, I live in Virginia, Virginia has a constitutional, um, state constitutional provisional, state's constitutional provision, which quite frankly also really intrudes on the right of contract as far as I'm concerned in terms of same-sex couples. Um, Virginia would not be required to, to recognize that or, or respect that marriage. Now, what we're trying to do in repealing DOMA is say that the federal government should not be discriminating in that situation and basically invalidating for federal purposes the, um, the lawfully uh, obtained marriage in New York. So that's my one takeaway for Republicans. Anybody from Republican office, happy to come talk to you about it because there's a lot of confusion about that. I, will, I can also go into why there is confusion about that, which is a sort of a historical irony in my mind. But anyway, um, so let me just say when we, when we started working on defensive marriage, you know, um, there was nobody that was married anywhere in the world. And I think there was a perception that this was going to be a problem. Gay people were the other. Um, you know, you'd see the parades. And there was just, quite frankly, there just weren't a lot of people out. And if you ask me what the difference is in the last 15 years or even the last five years or even the last year, uh, people, uh, gay, lesbian, everybody's much more comfortable coming out, and I, you know, I see a lot of young faces in the crowd, and I, you know, quite frankly, attribute it to all of you who have gay friends, you've been supportive of those gay friends, and that has made a tremendous difference, and that is these people get together, they're in loving families. Uh, one of the gals I work with at Freedom to Marry, Joe Deutsch, has been with her partner for 20, 30, 20 years? 29 years, going on 30 years. They have three beautiful children, one of whom's in college. Uh, she's getting married, she lives in Maryland, she's getting married this, um, this May. So it's not like couples haven't been committing to these relationships. It's really just a matter of whether the state is um, recognizing, protecting them, quite frankly, protecting their children. Anyway, going back to 1996, um, 
we passed the Defense of Marriage Act. I remember sitting in the hearing with, uh, at the House Judiciary Committee, and Barney Frank uh, asked the question, well, I don't understand how if I marry my partner, it hurts your marriage. And I remember at the time thinking, yeah, I don't know either. But I gotta be honest, I really never listened much to what Barney Frank said, so uh, it was sort of easy to you know, let that glaze over. But quite frankly, even Charles Cooper, when he was arguing in the California, I think before the Ninth Circuit, in the lower courts, they asked him the same question. He said, I don't know how it, I don't know how that hurts the marriage of a straight person. And, and I even look at, um, you know, Senator Flake, I think he was on one of the Sunday shows, and he said, I, you know, I believe in the traditional view that marriage is between a woman, man and a woman. It's like, you know what, it's not going to stop being between a man and a woman. Men and women are still going to get married. Um, they're going to continue to have kids. It's really a question of whether the state is going to, and the federal government is going to discriminate against couples in those loving committed relationships who have children um, or not. So one other thing I just want to... Uh, cover. So I've been doing this work with Freedom to Marry and actually with Tori Shear who is here. Tori left me to go to, what's, what's the name of the group again? Are you am I allowed to talk about it? Anyway, he left me. He's still doing the same work that they're going to announce their group. Um, but it's good so I can still bug him for stuff, which is very helpful for me personally. Um, when we started meeting with, you know, we basically did a list of re Republicans, members who voted for, who voted to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell, who's voted for ENDA, who's co-sponsored it, like sort of a framework of all their votes. And we went and started talking to Republicans. And this was a year and a half, maybe almost two years ago. And I can't really quite explain to you the difference between then and now. Um, a lot of the members would say, who even ones who are very LGBT friendly would say, yeah, but you know what, I've always said that marriage is between a man and a woman. And I'm like, okay. I, I accept that. So again, it's not going to stop being between a man and a woman. Um, but let's look at the facts. You know, when you supported DOMA, um, there was nobody married. Now you have all these couples. They have children. That, that, you know, it just creates a nightmare when one of them dies. Um, it's very complicated in terms of wills. And quite frankly, they want a lot of times, and I have a partner in my law firm who told me she was getting married. She said, quite honestly, we're going to get killed on our taxes when we get married. She's like, but my kids... They want us to be married. They want us to have that recognition of the fact that we are we are legally bound. We are we are already emotionally bound. They want the recognition that we're legally bound. Um, as far as where Republicans go, I think Walter has laid it out very very well. You know, there's a lot. The dynamic in this Congress is every, you know, a lot of Republicans are afraid of primaries, and it's this issue is just one of the issues about which they are they are concerned about primary. So I think a lot of them are rethinking the issue, um, not just because of the politics, uh, because I do still think it's somewhat of an uphill climb politically, but we're working to, to change that. Um, but they're rethinking the issue because everybody else is rethinking the issue. They've probably got, you know, Senator Portman has a gay son, you're gonna have a gay friend, you're gonna have a gay family member, you're gonna have a gay cousin, and you just start to think about it in a different way, and you say, well, yeah, who, who, is, who, who is hurt by allowing gay couples to marry? And who is harmed? And quite frankly, you know, we went to the, uh, I went with, to the Republican platform meeting in 
last year in Tampa, and Tony, per Tony Perkins gave a speech about the importance of marriage, which was absolutely beautiful, and I agreed with every single word he said until the last sentence, which was, and this is why we shouldn't let gay couples get married. And I thought, no, this is why we should let gay couples get married, <laughs> because it's all those things that are important and bind us together um, that we really want we really want to validate. So my final word is, um, so I've been with my partner, Julie, since about 2004. When we went to the Minnesota Convention in 2008, I joked that I was going to get a pin that said, um, pro-life, pro-gun, pro-gay. And I would have two of them made, um, one for me and one for her. And um, I sort of joked with a bunch of people, and a lot of people, yeah, no, no, I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that. And and I, I have to say, when we got, when I didn't do it, Ken Melman largely did it, the brief with 133, 131, 133 uh, former, current Republican elected officials uh, and people like me, staffers, um, I thought, okay, now we're starting to realize, now it's time for Republicans to support this issue to come out and to basically push back in a respectful way um, and say, you know what, I think the party needs to um, I, I'm a Republican. I think we need to rethink our position on this. Um, I've already rethought my position. But to get other people in an encouraging way, if they ask questions, answer the questions respectfully. You don't have to yell at anybody that you disagree with. Um, but I can definitely see the uh, trajectory. We've got a lot of work ahead of us. Um, it is an amazing, as I said, an amazing trajectory in terms of the issue, but it's going to take a little bit more time, a little more work. So for those of you that are Republicans, you go back to people, just make your views known. Just say, you know, this is something I support, and uh, it's an issue that's important to me, and uh, I wanna, I'm a Republican, I want to stay a Republican, but um, this is something where I think that the party needs to, um, to make a move.